0: Sister
1: White, we will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdoms on the move, with the poor and
0: the meek, and the hungry and the lonely. I'll
1: never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrums podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter. And I am honored to be joined by Dr. Richard Osborne, someone I know as a friend, as someone who gave me my first job in higher education, and someone who uh, has been a leader in education both in Adventism and in America. So thank you for joining us today. Nice to be here, Alex. Let's start uh, talking about your early connection to the Adventist Forum and Spectrum.
0: My brother in law, Larry Garrity, uh, was involved in the first group that got together in Boston. And so I was familiar with Forum because of that. And uh, when the Washington, D.C. chapter started early on, I was probably in my mid 20s, I was invited to be the president of the local chapter. Uh, And we organized a lot of great meetings. Uh, One of the things we did was organize the faith and science series. We had a bunch of well-known international scientists in the DC area, Adventists, who didn't wanna talk about it because they always got attacked for their views. I'm thinking about Peter Hare, Edgar Hare is uh, more formally known, who was one of the first scientists to get the moon, uh, rocks from the moon to date, Uh, Don Ortner who eventually became actually the acting head of the Smithsonian Institution while they were looking for a, a political appointee and a, of the, a number of others like that. So we organized this series on my uh, steering committee to do that was Ray Cottrell, uh, Don Newfeld, and individuals like that, a good friend of mine who was going through a, a chemistry PhD program at Maryland, Roger Tatum. And instead of asking them to talk about their own views on the topic, we asked them to talk about the latest views in the field, not necessarily their own. And so that gave them an opportunity to expose the audiences to that part of their life, uh, their professional life. And then I went on from there and became uh, the secretary of the forum, the treasurer for 17 years. And so it was very active. Uh, in fact, I lost jobs in the Adventist church because of my connection with Forum. Wow! I was invited to be president of a GC institution at one point, and uh, I was supposed to get that position. Uh, the board had sort of decided that I would be the person to get that if another one turned it down. And when it didn't come, the chair of the board called and beat it, was beating around the bush. And I finally said, uh, is the reason Forum? And he said, yes. <laughs> so, um, My involvement cost me a job, and I'm not sorry that it did, because in terms of how my career turned out, much better than if I had gone there. It was during that time that I knew Forum needed, I was the treasurer, so I was paying the bills, needed an office. And my parents had a basement apartment that they weren't renting out. And so I went to my mom and dad and I said, would you be willing to let this be the National Office of Forum? And so that's where Roy Branson uh, kind of hanged out for about two or three years, rent free. And uh, when they finally moved out, they gave my parents a lifetime subscription to Spectrum uh, as an appreciation. But I'll never forget the night that Neil Wilson and Eleanor were at my parents' house and we were invited over for dinner that evening. And at one point in the conversation of the evening, my dad looked at Neil, his longtime friend and said, Neil, I wanna take you downstairs and show you something. (laughs) So they walked down to the basement and he said, this is the national office of the Association of Adventist Forums. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if that uh, later cost my dad the possibility of another promotion, which is uh, what should have happened. But we've had a long association. So early on for me, (laughs) it was that exploration for new ways of looking at truth, new ways of looking at Adventism. And that started in my mid-20s. And so, that was sort of a paradigm that affected how I viewed the church, not just the church, but my life in general and the way society functioned in general. So, it was a crucial part of not only my intellectual and spiritual upbringing, but my social uh, fellowship, because the folks that I was with and formed were some of my closest personal friends.
1: You know, thanks for sharing those anecdotes. One of the things that i really appreciate about the forum history is the amount of institution builders who were part of the formation of the forum and would you mind um talking about obviously uh your parents are there uh connected with the gc but also interested in the ideas that the group uh uh, surrounding the forum are exploring, some of which are at times critical of the institution. Uh, Can you talk about what it was with your your parents, with your own kind of intellectual development uh, that made you so interested in what the forum was doing in those days?
0: You know, my parents were very conservative. And I mentioned my in-laws, Norma's parents, uh, Arthur Keo and Dora, especially Arthur, who taught religion at uh, Columbia Union College. Uh, before that, a lifelong service in the Middle East as a missionary in Lebanon, and our home was filled with conversation and discussion. And even though our families were very conservative, they encouraged an open discussion of ideas. And so that was the atmosphere in which I was raised. There was a lot. Of, there were a lot of former uh, missionaries, actually. Uh, from the Middle East, where my parents had been missionaries also, that on Sabbath would get together and we would talk and argue and discuss, often dissecting the latest sermon by Bill Lovelace that we had just heard at Sligo. Uh, Neil Wilson was often part of the discussion as he was uh, going up in church leadership from the Columbia Union to the North American Division of the GC. So that's the kind of atmosphere that I was raised in, of looking at things openly. Even though there was a basic conservative thrust to the talk that uh, my parents engaged in and the Keos did, there was still this ultimate loyalty to the Adventist church. Even if we had questions, there was the ultimate loyalty to the church. And even the idea of working
1: for the church was a central component of the way I was raised. Well, you did rebel. You didn't go into finance. You went into education. (laughs) (laughs) My brother, though, my brother, though, did go into finance. <laughs> yes. So tell me why you're the black sheep of the family. <laughs> Probably because I wasn't smart enough to do finances. <laughs> That's why we go into the humanities. <laughs> uh, what drew you to studying education?
0: You know, I never did study
1: uh, education. That's, well, history. You
0: know, history. Okay. I, I make The reason I make that distinction is that there was a point When I finished my master's degree in history at the University of Maryland, they encouraged me to go on for my doctorate. That's kind of a was the way they kind of decided who could work on a Ph.D. at Maryland. And um, I at one point contemplated actually doing uh, more of an EDD route. Um, I shouldn't talk this way, but I found the classes I took to get certified, which is the education classes I had um, quite boring not very intellectually stimulating, not very content oriented, important for pedagogy and learning how to teach. And I just uh, thought, I can't do this for a whole doctoral program. So while I kind of put off the committee for a bit, after about a year, I went back to my advisor and said, I would like to pursue a PhD in history. So I've, I've worked uh, in education more from that kind of content specialty area, academic discipline. education and I respect my colleagues who did more of the education route and they've made tremendous contributions in terms of operating our schools and at various administrative levels, so I'm not trying to put that down in any way. It's just that I found it more meaningful to approach it this other way. Consequently, it took me a lot longer. Um, You know, I was on my master's degree for five or seven years and then my PhD, I think it was 12 years, because doing a dissertation uh, in an academic discipline, if you're not doing a full time, which I wasn't, takes a lot longer than doing another kind of a doctoral program. So
1: um, do you went, do you mind talking a little bit about your um, early years in educational uh, context, whether it's, you know, you know, Sabbath school uh, um, church school, uh, being in the mission field, and learning from, you know, whoever was teaching you there, uh, or even as you were moving into a uh, um, church uh, church school administration and academy administration, what uh, what were some of the parts of that that made you think this is this is a uh, you know the career for you?
0: Well, you know, once you get into something, it's it's hard to break away from it. Um, I had. Planned to be a lawyer, and I was pre-law through college. And then, because my parents had raised me to work for the church, I realized that basically I would be writing trust agreements and wills <laughs> as a lawyer, and that's not something that was attractive. I was more interested in the religious liberty side, and my master's thesis actually was in that part of my life uh, on the establishment of religious freedom in Virginia in the uh, 18th century. So um, you know, it, it it was kind of uh, I started it and I continued it. Now, I was in two teacher schools, basically, all the way from first grade up through eighth grade, a small school in San Jose, California, where my parents lived. Uh, My father was treasurer of the Central California Conference, Um, mission field school with about 12 kids, one or two teachers, Um, then on to uh, Montevideo, Uruguay, where actually they didn't have a missionary school. We went to the local church school. So that was a two-teacher school, Spanish uh, my last year of elementary school was there. Then uh, my parents gave me a choice when I finished there. They said, you can either take home study correspondence school for academy, you can go to the local boarding school in Uruguay, or you can go to Monterey Bay Academy, which my father had helped found in California. And my grandparents lived about an hour away in Mountain View. And they said to me, we'll give you two weeks to decide. I said, I don't need two weeks. I wanna to go to Monterey Bay. And so I left them. Uh, I can't imagine how my mother was feeling as she saw me off uh, to go away for a year, even though her parents were gonna be watching over me. And I ended up at MBA, one of the uh, greatest experiences of my life at that school and some great friends that I had around me. Um, I can't say that I had, uh, I had some teachers that were great models um, and that helped, but, and then at Columbia Union College, where I went after a year at La Sierra, when my parents moved back and my dad became part of the general conference, um, I had a great experience at, at Columbia Union College. But then I decided I didn't want to become a lawyer, so I started working on a master's degree at the University of Maryland. And when I finished that first year, didn't finish my master's thesis by then, I sent out applications for jobs and uh, for academy teaching. And I sent out a bunch of them, and I never heard back from anybody. I mean, not even an acknowledgment that they had gotten the letter <laughs> or the r- request. And at that point, uh, my wife, Norma, went to Miriam Timerson, the principal of John Nevins Andrews School. Uh, she was principal there, by the way, for 41 years. Wow. And said, uh, Mrs. Timerson, uh, I may not be here next year because uh, my husband's looking for a teaching job, uh, in an academy. Well, she had been there so long and she had a completely female staff and the board had been pressuring her to hire a male teacher. And she had said to the board, I tried it 20 years ago and it didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) But she agreed to hire me to keep Norma. So actually, I got my first job because Norma was so good at being a third grade teacher that she wanted to keep her there and hired me. And then I spent five wonderful years working for that amazing woman, and we had all these highly educated families in general conference and review and herald kids. It was a wonderful place to teach seventh and eighth graders that I loved. And then uh, I tried being a principal for one year at an elementary school, and I won't go th- into the story of how that happened and why I left after a year. But then I ended up at Tacoma Academy, five years as a teacher, and then eight years as the principal. Now, what's odd, Alex, is that my entire career, my entire career up until I went to PUC was in the Washington DC area. Sure. Most Adventist educators are moving constantly, or as they, if they have career opportunities, they're moving up the ladder, they're moving. My entire career took place in the Washington DC area, seventh and eighth grade teacher, elementary school principal, academy teacher, academy uh, principal, um, superintendent of a conference, union vice president, of Michigan, North American division vice president of Virginia, entirely in the Washington, D.C. area, which is pretty remarkable. And it really gave for uh, great stability for our family, for our kids. Our kids lived uh, within five miles of my parents' case, one block from their grandparents uh, during their upbringing years. So, that was a wonderful blessing. And then to be in the D.C. area with all of these wonderful church leaders, because my father was a general conference leader, there was a lot of opportunity to interact with some of the top church leaders and see them on a social level, because there was a lot of times when my parents would have them over for meals. As in the mission field, there was this huge social interchange that went on between even the children and these High level workers who you saw in a different light
1: when they were in your home playing with you. It seems like there was so much uh, intellectual ferment and uh, social connections that happened in the Adventist uh, community there in the well, 60s it was not and just, 70s.
0: It wasn't just in the church. Uh, you, I talked about the fact that um, when I was teaching eighth graders, the social ferment that was taking place in the country and in DC. The local news is the world news. And to have people like that, that are around you, the students were interested in current affairs. The students were uh, interested in these issues that we were talking about, even as 13 year old eighth graders. And then they came from families that were also interested in the importance of these topics. So it was a very, very stimulating environment. Well, you mentioned Norma, how did both of you meet? Well, uh, my parents were asked to be missionaries to Lebanon, and her parents had been there most of their lives. Her father was actually born in Cairo, Egypt, as the son of the first English missionaries in Egypt. And so, they had been there a long time. And my dad was asked to be the treasurer of the division. We moved into this compound house, and the Kios lived maybe 70 or 80 yards from us. They were the nearest home to where we were. There was a missionary school uh, and, uh, so that's where we got acquainted and, uh, we love to tell the, the story of our first date, um, Midge Olson, who was a, a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Uh, some of, you know, Kermit Netterberg and that, uh, was his yeah, mother and mom. Sure. And, uh, Ronald Lee, his wife was her daughter. She was an amazing teacher, creative in every way, made school fun. And she, on Valentine's Day, this is before the years of feminism, asked all the girls to bring two lunches, and then the boys drew names, and I drew Norma's name, and then she went around and took pictures of all the couples. (laughs) So, we actually have a picture (laughs) <laughs> of our first date in, I think, fifth grade. <laughs> and she was a, a year grade. You had me in sixth grade, whatever, fourth and fifth. Yeah. So that's how we got acquainted. And then- uh, Completely random. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And then we both ended up back in the DC area where her father's teaching in the religion department and the uh, CUC and my father was there. And uh, I decided that I wanted to move back there. And probably within four or five days, we went on our first date. And um, we will be married uh, 52 years coming up. Congratulations. And I think uh, you had Larry Garrity on an earlier one and his, his he told the story about how the Keogh family, he married Norma's older sister and his, the younger brother Alger, married uh, into the Lesher family, which was another missionary family from the Middle East.
1: So three of the four children in that family married missionaries kids. That's great. Um, let's jump into um, talking more generally about um, some uh, lessons that you've learned leading institutions like Pacific Union College, uh, forming organizations um, like the Association of Adventist Colleges and Universities, and what you've learned working with um, uh, well, let's just uh, start with th- th- kind of that period of time. As you are reflecting back on where, um, uh, where education has intersected with your life and the values that Spectrum has um, promulgated, what sort of things do you look back on and, and think that folks should uh, know about um, in, the, in this kind of mix of history and education? In, in our community.
0: Yeah, you know, there was a Republican, wasn't it Lee Atwater who talked about the big tent of Republicanism? Yeah. And that was, I think, after he got a brain tumor and had kind of a conversion experience yeah. as he had <laughs> been a really nasty operative. And I guess I, I kind of believe in that big tent of Adventism. And I've tried to have that kind of an atmosphere wherever I have either worked, taught, or, or been a leader is that big tent of Adventism. And so I think that's important. Uh, I think that I had, I've been very blessed by not having one bad leader, mm. uh, not a single board chair, not a single president that was overseeing my work, not a single vice president. They were all very supportive and terrific
1: individuals. So, if I, I could, never, never had any battles with people like that. That's great. Do you mind just defining both in your mind what makes for a good you know, a couple qualities that you think make for a good leader versus a, a bad leader, uh, as you're just talking? Well, I, you know, for one thing, let me give you one philosophy
0: I have. Yeah. <clears throat> I ended up um, at a Mennonite college in my work at Wask, and they had just uh, had a president leave after only a year, and they were feeling very badly about that. Mennonites, they're known for peace. Yeah. And they even have a peace center on campus where they go out, and help churches have peace. And they had had this. And so they they said to our team, what what went wrong? Uh, What should we do? Well, I guess I was in a better position as a staff member rather than the team to answer that question. I said, as you're looking for a president, clearly define their weaknesses and their strengths and make sure you have people around them to cover for their weaknesses. And if they don't think they have any weaknesses, then you may want to look somewhere else because no one is going to be perfect. So the leaders that I worked with in all of these various areas and institutions, uh, they all had strengths and weaknesses and you learn how to work with the strengths and you learn how to work around the weaknesses. And so I think that's a very key element in, um, you know, Mm -hmm. as you're working in in an institution is to clearly identify those. I also like to be around people that are very collaborative. When they talk about uh, a leader needs a vision, yeah, I'm concerned about that. I think a vision is developed from the ground up and not from the top down. Because if it comes from the top down, it's the leader's vision. It's not the vision of the people. And so creating that from kind of the ground level up, I think, is very, very important. And that's the kind of people that I like who view a team, a collaborative group of people working together, and learning how to work with those with all the strengths and the weaknesses that are going on. Um, I also uh, believe in trying to develop consensus, but my definition of consensus isn't unanimity. It's having enough people that agree on something that it can be effective. That's also very important to me. And then I think there's a whole thing about lifelong learning. I want to work with people that are interested in constantly learning and not just sticking with what they have always done. Mm -hmm. I think I would have some real problems in this current environment. Um, I'm glad I retired when I did. I mean, I worked almost 50 years in education. But again, I'm old and I'm maybe stuck in my ways in some ways. Um, My office now. They basically have moved out of the office at WASC. They knew they weren't gonna be there, so they're saving the rent. But when they come back, there's probably not gonna be a traditional office. There'll be a lot of working at home. There won't be private offices. There won't be the people in the office together working together, which is the way I like to work. But I have to say, it's not necessarily the best. There may be new ways of doing it. And the same thing with pedagogy. We're gonna have to deliver education in different kinds of ways. Um, and people have gotten used to this kind of hybrid of online face and, and being in a classroom face-to-face. Is there a combination there that will be even more effective? So, I think that uh, when you're in a setting, you have to be open to new ideas and new ways of doing your work and not always stuck in the past. So, those are just a few things, you know, that I think about when I'm in a, in a setting. And I've, I've enjoyed it. I've, I, you know, I love my uh, Nearly 40 years of work for the Adventist Church, and then another 10 years working for uh, an accreditation agency that accredited all of the major colleges and universities in California and Hawaii. Uh,
1: I want to talk more about your um, insights into um, the future of education and leadership. But if you don't mind, I want to share an anecdote that I... um, remember from you. And I'd like to explore that, um, a little bit. I remember, um, we were kind of at, in the economic downturn in what, 2009 or so at PUC, and you gave a presentation in which, uh, you were not candy coating things. In fact, you were very honest about the fact that, um, small, liberal arts leaning, especially Christian private colleges were um, not just affected by the economic downturn negatively, but actually affected by demographic trends. Um, And I found your honesty uh, really refreshing because you were at, you were actually citing statistics, which you know most uh, presidents don't usually do, um, especially ones that are about how th- how the institution was threatened by, you know, what was on the horizon. And I'm curious uh, from you why, what about or why did you, uh, decide to be so frank with um, the faculty and staff like that?
0: Uh, because I always have been. Um, you know, that's just that's just who I am. It doesn't matter whether I have been a teacher in an eighth grade classroom or president of Pacific Union College. I've always been very open, perhaps overly so. So it's just who I am. And uh, I feel that the audience can handle the information and it makes them better prepared for what might come. So that it was no great you know, decision about, should we do this or should we do that? The other approach is to sugarcoat everything and basically to put out false narratives as a public relations way of building up your institution. Yeah. And I don't think that's honest and I don't think it's Christian. Now you can share too much. I understand that. And uh, I understood as a teacher, that you can't share some things with young kids as you can with a college student. Sure, there are levels of maturity, but when you're in a college setting, uh, it's better to be completely open and transparent.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, for whatever reason, it's stuck in my mind, and it comes back every once in a while, especially when I think about presentations that I need to be make to make and and what to share and not to share. So, thank you for that. Um, you know, you, let, me, let me mention one other thing, please. Um, and that is
0: one of the driving uh, uh, ideas of my life has been collaboration and trying to pull things together, and I have to tell you that I've been a real failure in this area because I think that we can save a lot and have better quality by sharing resources, so I've actually had four or five attempts at putting institutions together and none of them succeeded. <laughs> and, and it is, I'm still there. And I'll, I'll, I'll just mention some of them. John Nevins Andrews School, big school in Tacoma Park, Sligo School, both, you know, experienced declines in enrollment. And uh, we put together a plan to put the two schools together. And uh, it was going to save hundreds of thousands a year and have actually better quality and more uh, offerings because of that, you know, art at a higher level language, on and on, full-time counselors, everything. Uh, My next attempt was after I left there, and that was trying to put Tacoma Academy and Spencerville Adventist Academy together. Hmm. I was afraid that we were going to end up with uh, basically a black school at Tacoma Academy and a white school at Spencerville, and I'm so committed to diversity that I didn't want to see that happen. But I had already left my position and so, guess who I asked the chair of the committee to try to enable this to happen? It was a recently retired a major church leader by the <laughs> name of Neil Wilson. And if anybody could have done this, it was Neil. You know, he had spent a lot of his career there. His wife had taught in the area. His kids had gone through schools there. And so, I thought, you know, he would be the perfect chair. And it didn't happen. I moved to PUC, and I should have burned my lesson by then. And I thought, this is ridiculous to have this little school down the hill called Foothills and this school up on the hill called PUC Prep. We should put these two together. So within my first few weeks, I pulled together a meeting of the pastors and the principals. And of course, that didn't go anywhere. And who knows what will happen now that Foothills is actually burned to the ground, most of it. Some of it is still standing, whether they'll continue on. And then I uh, uh, should have learned, but I didn't. And my brother-in-law, Larry Garrity, was president of La Sierra, the two of us got together and said, why don't we go to the union and ask if we can put our two institutions together, PUC and La Sierra, and would the union be willing to fund a committee to do that? And so we had a committee that met several times. Uh, It included Larry and me, it included uh, two of the most creative board members from each institution, one faculty member from each institution, And the recently retired union director of education, Gary Thompson, as the chair of the committee and the union paid for this. We had several meetings. We were at the point of almost making this happen when I uh, was uh, invited to leave my position by the PUC board and my brother-in-law retired. (laughs) And uh, my successor had no interest in that idea. I think uh, Larry's did, but uh, the idea went nowhere. And in recent times, I've even suggested that again. Um, uh, by writing emails to, you know, union officials, uh, because I think it's still a, a very good idea. So you'd think I'd learn, but now um, I'm involved with the North American <laughs> Division Task Force that Gordon Beats is chairing. And yeah. we are in the middle of putting together what's called a PSA, a private system affiliation agreement to try to have some shared services between the willing group of institutions that are willing to participate. We hired a consultant from AGB, which is one of the top professional organizations in the U.S., uh, governing board institutions, and we've been busy at this for almost uh, three or four months, and we're beginning to put together uh, a sampling of a few services that might be shared by some institutions as a beginning point. So, maybe before I die, there'll be some (laughs) little evidence of these commitments which I've had uh, over the last few years, because I think that's another important principle. Uh, I've watched this happen you know, out of the church. Uh, I have the privilege in retirement now of serving on six university boards. And uh, one of them is the Chicago School for Professional Psychology. It's an institution with about 6,000 students, uh, very strong, biggest, one of the biggest psychology programs in the country, they also have a nursing school in Dallas. And uh, they are part of something, or we are part of something called TCS, the Community Solution, in mm. Chicago. And in that, you have about six institutions that share services from Chicago. And I've just seen it work so well. Mm. And I've wondered if that's some good possibility for the Adventist Church, because I've personally experienced it.
1: Yeah. Um, well, Thanks for being so honest about <laughs> those failures and um. And the impetus behind them. What is it about um, the? Dif- is there something about um, Adventism? Um, the way the structures work. Whether we're talking about um, uh, unions, conferences. Is there something about the way that uh, church schools and their constituent churches operate that makes collaboration and consolidation so challenging?
0: I think they're all independent. You know, This is not a top-down centralized system. So each has a local constituency and there are obviously a variety of institutions. There are uh, two of them that are operated by hospitals and Loma Linda actually has one board now between the hospital and the university. And uh, then the others are, one of them's the North American Division Institution, that's Oakwood, which is an HBCU, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a higher education institution focused on black students. Um, and so there's a variety of, of, of approaches. And so there's no central authority, there's no money that can be said, well, we won't give you this unless you do this. And so there's no incentive that way. It has to be from the willing point of view of the local area. And I think there's been also a lack of courage. Um, you know, we used to have, and, and I don't want to be disparaging, I haven't worked with these union presidents recently, but we used to have two or three real leaders that could drive uh, certain forces and discussions. I'm thinking of people like Tom Mostert, mm-hmm. who was one of the most innovative and creative and courageous church leaders I've worked with. I think of Chuck um, Sandifer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the uh, able ability he had to bring focus to important issues. And I, maybe I just don't know the current group, but I don't sense the same kind of, of leadership in that group. And there's the fear of losing your institution, huge fear. If you're a union president, you don't wanna lose an institution on your watch because then maybe the next time you're up for election, you won't be reelected. And I think at the local level, there's a fear also of um, losing autonomy. Um, When you have a shared service arena, there are gonna be fewer employees because you're not gonna need as many employees as before. So there's a lot of fear there. And then there goes back the old discussion about when certain unions were put together, uh, things didn't get any much better. Michigan Conference used to have several boarding academies. They closed down several of them and they only have one now and the enrollment isn't that great. So people say, look at these examples and nothing improved as a result. So I think there's some of that uh, that's involved. There's, There's a lot of fear. And the other thing is, if we do this, is there gonna be a return on our investment? Uh, it is going to really save us money because the argument on the other side is that with shared services, you can actually improve the quality of what you're offering. For one thing, um, which isn't a widely accepted idea by some, you can pay people more. And that's what happens in the Chicago system, the community solution. They can pay people more money to oversee marketing, to oversee HR, to oversee compliance issues, legal issues. Um, on and on, Mm -hmm. accounting, financing, and you can take advantage of that by being shared by a bunch of institutions.
1: So, um, you know, I talked with uh, Gordon for this podcast um, a few months ago, and really appreciated hearing his perspective. I know you're a part of that um, process. Can you talk about, you kind of just mentioned it Uh, Here, but I was kind of curious about what you, why you think that um, Adventist institutions should pursue shared services. You kind of you talked already about paying people more, Um, but uh, I would love for you to go a little deeper into um, you know perhaps how it connects to mission, perhaps how institutions are failing or on the verge of. Massive decline. Um, what what is it that you really see as the the need um, for this solution?
0: Well, the obvious need is uh, enrollment. Uh, enrollment is down a lot in K twelve, Advent schools, and it's down in higher ed. So this model is not sustainable. And what it means is you just have uh, lower and lower quality while you try to maintain the same number of institutions. So I think that's one of my biggest concerns is uh, I've, you know, I've worked out of the church for 10 years. I've worked with some of the great universities in the world, uh, both faith-based as well as public. Um, and I could see what they could do with more money and more resource that benefits the students. And I think we have to say that in some cases, what we're offering is a mediocre education, hmm we're not offering the quality that we could offer. I mean, we've often heard references to Brigham Young and the Mormon model of having one major university. Of course, they have another smaller branch uh, in Utah, I believe, and then one in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And so, it's just easier for an institution to do this. Um, I just think we're trying to do too much, and it waters it down so that we can't offer the real quality that we need to offer. And to have this based on the old thing about, can you get to the uh, local college in a, a wagon train <laughs> from your uh, little uh, farm somewhere in the middle of the plains, which was the way they had to do it before. Uh, now, you know it's Southwest Airlines, an uh, inexpensive flight uh, to another place or another airline, Alaska, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's easier to get around. And of course, with the use of technology now, which has been shown to be very viable through the pandemic, there are other opportunities as well. Now, you know, think about this, Alex. We have a denomination of about a million people. And if you try to divide that denomination... In the in the United States. In the United States. Canada. Mm-hmm. And you divide that into a certain number of unions, they all have to be staffed. And then there are a bunch of conferences, each has to be staffed. It, all these schools, which to be 11 or 1200, they all have to be staffed. And you... Um, have a a book and Bible house for each one. You have a summer camp for each one. You go on and on like that. And this is basically, what, what city the size of a million people would have this kind of a bureaucracy that's supporting a million people? And my question has been, can you really find enough quality people to staff that kind of an organization? And my answer is you can't. And you know, the church is not an employment agency. The church is uh, set up to to serve, not to serve employees, but to serve and have broader meaning. Uh, And so, it just seems like we're trying to do too much with this structure, with not enough people. I mean, there's only a certain percentage of people in a million people that can be a college president. Sure. And yet, we try to have 13 of them. And we try to have the same at every level, Um, And you go down and do that. You know, the Jesuits have had a similar problem. Um, I uh, had the privilege of having uh, University of San Francisco in my portfolio at WASC.
1: And my daughter actually
0: went to law school there and graduated from there and was able to pass the California bar on her first try. I say that because it's really a hard bar. We were very, very proud of her. But, you know, they've always tried to have a Jesuit priest be the president, And I've become very familiar with uh, two or three of them uh, at a very deep and personal level. But the problem is there aren't very many Jesuit priests. And are there enough Jesuit priests to find presidents for Santa Clara University, University of San Francisco, Loyola Marymount? These are just the three in California across the country. And so they've had to branch out and hire lay presidents for these because there just aren't enough Uh, Jesuit priests. And I've thought about the same analogy at the Adventist Church. Are there enough really (laughs) qualified and really excellent people that can staff all of this bureaucracy in the church? And I think the same problem applies to our universities and colleges. Um, You know, can you find in that million people um, 13 marketing directors who have the expertise, and then you're going to pay them 50,000 a year to do this. To do this, yeah. uh, you know, as compared to having one place that individualizes the marketing for each place, but also pays adequately to get the very best people, because those very best people can get a job in Adventist Health if they want to stay in the church sure. and make what they could make in the community. Um, so I just think we're trying to do too much with that. And it just ends up with a reduced quality. You, you get rid of staff, you get rid of faculty, you cut back on administrative positions. You're not able to staff the kinds of things that I have witnessed that really, really make a difference. I'll just give you one example. I'm sorry Please. for going on yeah. so long here. I was one gonna of the ask things, for one. One of the things I really like about WASC, uh, one of the greatest things I enjoyed about working at WASC was our focus on achievement gaps. That is the gaps between various ethnic groups in their educational performance, their ability to graduate, your ability to retain them, the ability to hire numbers, both in terms of staff as well as administration and to get enough students. And I've watched the kinds of resources that a great institution like the University of California at Santa Barbara is able to put into that effort to enable these students to be successful. They are a Hispanic-serving institution. They have more than 25% of their students who are Hispanic. Many of these students come from families that are working two and three jobs to maintain a life that don't speak English as their primary language. And I've watched how an institution like that or an institution like Fresno State University can almost narrow the gaps of achievement between students. Some people call that a wraparound model. But that doesn't happen by accident. That happens because they have the resources or they make the resources a priority to give these students a support system, even starting in high school, to be successful at their institution. And I just don't think we have that kind of resource. You know, when we're cutting back to try to balance the budget for the next time and how many students are we gonna have, and your budget depends on the students, you don't have big enough endowments to be able to uh, cushion your resources uh, in the down years when you need to pull into those. It just, I think, raises questions, not only about the quality education, but our our willingness to to support the students like they should be. Now, the other side is that when you're small, you can be more intimate, you can be family, you can give students like that a lot of personal support. but it also takes uh, other kinds of resources to enable a student like that to be successful. Yeah. You know, mentioning Fresno
1: State, well, let's come back to this. I want to tell another story. Yeah. Let's jump to Fresno State because I actually wanted a couple of institutional examples. Um, You know, teaching online here in the pandemic made me appreciate uh, some new things about um, pedagogy Um, For instance, I really enjoyed how I could be lecturing, students could be answering questions, both with their hand raised verbally, but also in the chat. And I could reply in the chat Mm. while somebody was asking a question in person, then I could reply either way. And it really helped for those students who don't always feel comfortable verbalizing um, questions Mm. or comments. It it really opened up the class uh, discussion. But uh, obviously, online school, I had students who were like, why am I paying so much money for this kind of education when basically everyone's offering this now? So you mentioned uh, wraparound model, and I'm just Mm -hmm. curious what you uh, see as consolidation and excellence in in academia in this case. Um, what do you see as some um, kind of undeniable changes that are on the horizon that we have to deal with? I think the, uh,
0: the day of the professor standing up for 50 minutes and lecturing nonstop and students frantically taking notes uh, is gonna become a relic of the past. I think that since teachers have been forced to do online learning, they're beginning to realize that there's more to teaching than lecturing and giving tests and quizzes. The resources that you can pull in are amazing uh, to even a a regular class, but especially a hybrid class. And I think teachers have begun to realize, professors, the potential of expanding their pedagogy beyond what they observed, which most of them are just teaching the way they were taught in their Mm -hmm. Ph.D. programs. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to lead to very dramatic changes um, eventually. As people, They were forced to get into this. You know, you're a good friend of mine, of my nephew, Ron Osborne, and yeah. uh, we were just with him uh, last week, and, and Ron, who was a great skeptic of this, said, you know, I have to admit that it hasn't been that bad. He said, I still think the undergraduates need more face-to-face, but he said, the graduate has really worked well for me. And I was shocked. Uh, because uh, Ron is the kind of guy that likes to get up, and, and he's at a great lecturer. He's a great speaker,
1: yeah.
0: and a wonderful preparer of materials for students. So well to read see, to see and to see how he's opened up uh, on this topic over the last uh, few months, from when I heard him talking at the beginning till
1: now. That's great. So you also mentioned a term, the wraparound model. Do you mind just defining what that means for folks who, like me, who aren't familiar with it? Well, you know, one of the first times I heard it was at, was at
0: Fresno State, I had a team in there. We had Ed Ray, president of Oregon State University at the time, one of the leading presidents in the country as the chair of the visit. And this is an institution, probably 45% Hispanic. And many of these are the children of, um, of workers in the fields mm-hmm. or who have maybe in the next generation been able to advance in education and risen to other kinds of jobs but it's still a very challenging population because they don't come with a lot of wealth. And uh, wealth often enables parents to give their children more experiences. It doesn't mean their children are any smarter or brighter. They've just been exposed to a wider uh, array of opportunities. And so we were absolutely stunned at how they had narrowed their achievement gap, by the resources they put into, the help, the counselors they gave them, even starting in high school and even in the summer before they started, special prep and special classes and the attention to when they see a student slipping, being able to follow that student up quickly to find out what's going on. Is it something at home or is it uh, uh, perhaps a learning difficulty that they can then provide a resource to help that person with that particular difficulty, maybe help them get into another area they might be stronger in, a very personalized, individualized approach, which you know an Adventist institution should technically be able to provide because they are so small. And so that was what was so amazing. And and we were in this large uh, public meeting, uh, not public, I mean, it was one of the planned meetings, there were probably 40 or 50 people there. And we were hearing them describe this in Ed Ray, a public university president, one of the best in the country, at a large public university, looked at this group and said, if you aren't doing God's work, I don't know who is. I was wow. stunned because this is not the normal talk of a public president <laughs> at a public university. And so, um, then I looked. Now, the president of the of State is not the person that made this happen because he'd only been there a couple of years. But let me tell you his story because this illustrates the power of education with young people, both in the church and out of the church. Joe Castro was born to a single-parent mother in Hanford, California. I think your wife knows that
1: place fairly mm-hmm. well. Spent she spent 14 years there at the, yes. working at the hospital.
0: And his grandparents lived in tents on the side of a river as they came from Mexico wow. to pick props. And then his mother who I think is a hairdresser or something, she uh, you know, raised him and uh, there was an opportunity for him to go to Berkeley to see a program there. It was a program they had designed to try to get Hispanic students to attend Berkeley. And he got admitted into the program, spent four years there, went on and got a PhD at Stanford. In the meanwhile, uh, the system is beginning to see the potential in Joe Um, And he started at UC uh, San Diego, low position, moved up to UC Santa Barbara, each of these UCs, eventually gets to UC San Francisco as their student services uh, vice chancellor. That's when I got to know him. He chaired two visits for me, uh, accreditation visits. That's how I got to, to become acquainted with him. And then he goes from there to be president of Fresno State. 20 miles, is it, from Hanford? I mean, it was yeah. like his backyard. Mm-hmm. Imagine this story uh, from grandparents in a tent on a river in Hanford to be the president of the largest public university in that region. Now, the uh, story has an even a more amazing ending. A few months ago, Joe became the chancellor of the California State University System, 23 campuses he now is the head of. And just think about his roots and where he started from. Now that's what gave me a lot of my drive in the work for accreditation, as we looked at how do we enable a young person like that to achieve all that they have the potential of achieving. And that's what education's about in the Adventist church, and it is in a large public university. It's giving these kids the opportunities. And I just think in the Adventist church, if we had the ability and more resources do that kind of thing. I know we have many success stories as well, that it would enable us to do an even better job.
1: Mm, thanks. You've uh, inspired me uh, and educated <laughs> me. So, thank you so much. Um, it seems like there's um, just these intervention points. And if, if the vision isn't there from the leadership and if the infrastructure isn't there with the institution or the um, many institutions, then we lose those opportunities to really um, raise someone's horizon. Um, You uh, gave a presentation at the choir room Sabbath school several years ago, and you had just come back from an accreditation visit in Mexico. And it was a school that had humanistic values, and yet Mm -hmm. you almost seemed on fire about what you learned from that school and their mission and what it um, perhaps offered a faith-based institution as far as a viable future. Do you mind just uh, sharing a little bit about that experience?
0: Yeah, CETYS University, that's C-E-T-Y-S and those each stand for some, uh, a word in, in Spanish and I can't remember what it all is. So there was a group of um, businessmen, and they were men, in, um, in, in Mexicali
1: mm-hmm.
0: who saw their young people going across the border to the U.S. to go to school their best, and then they would never come back. And so they said, what can we do to create a university that will be so good that Mexican students will stay here and give back to the community? And they built that institution around certain values of humanism, and I can't remember what those values are, but there are like six or seven of those, and one of them is spirituality, actually. Hmm. Now, the reason is uh, I found this so surprising is that I had been raised to believe that humanism was bad and uh, very dangerous, and yet I was seeing an institution founded on humanism doing great things for its young people. They eventually started a campus in Tijuana and another one in Ensenada. It's a private university. And uh, the current president actually graduated from SETI's, went on and got a doctorate from Stanford, worked in the U.S., and then has returned now to be the leader of that institution. Um, I just, I was inspired by the teachers and how committed they were to their students and each student, not that Adventist teachers aren't, but it was to an unusual level. Uh, I remember the team... Um, crying as we listened to some of the graduates talk about their experience. Um, I remember one uh, alumnus uh, in particular who talked about the fact they have a kind of a study abroad program, but you have to come up with the money to do that. And she didn't have the money to do it. And her teachers said, you can do this. And they were even giving money to help her do that. And now here yeah. she was, the mother of a student at SETI's. And so this whole circle of seeing this take place was just absolutely inspiring. It was also the same as we listened to students talk. I guess, um, let me branch out into another area, which I think you were alluding to. I think we've been way too narrow in our view of Adventist education being for Adventists, having to be offered by Adventists, only Adventist boards. And that there's an opportunity for a much greater outreach than we have realized. The counter argument to that is that it will just mean that institution will become secularized and it'll just become, you've heard the story about the universities that used to be religious and now they're just big, uh, you know, institutions offering no particular distinctive uh, basis for their education. But I've also seen a place like SETI's, which is not a faith-based institution, but it's committed to certain values. And one of those is spirituality. I had conversations with the president about, what does that mean? He's a devout Catholic. Uh, And he was having trouble defining that for that institution, but they were having the conversations. But I've also seen institutions like the University of San Francisco that is dedicated to values, Jesuit Catholic values, which are serving the needy, social justice, those kinds of key values that are a central part of being a Jesuit. And I've seen them be able to take that and impart those values to a large number of students that are there not because they're Catholic or because they believe in Jesuits. It's even a daughter of ours, like Heather, who went to law school. And those values are imbued throughout the institution. And so I've said to myself, um, what if Adventists were less particular about their distinctive doctrines and their distinctive way of doing things, and were more uh, general, let's say more Christian in their approach, but had some of those distinctive elements that were included, similar to what Adventist Health does with its institutions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, SETI's helped me change that perspective. I don't view humanism as a religion, but it gave me an idea of how you could take the values, those core values, and teach them, core values of a Catholic institution, core values of, of a of an evangelical institution like Azusa Pacific, which I have worked with, or I'm on the board of Los Angeles Pacific University, an institution that in just the four or five years has got 3000 students doing online education, and they try to imbue their values through that particular way of imparting their their mission and their values. So, yes, I I just think there are a lot of opportunities uh, like what you heard me talk about from SETI's to have a broader mission than just this very narrow mission that we serve at Now, I know many of our admins colleges are already doing that, especially the healthcare ones, but I think there are greater opportunities beyond that to get away from this kind of cultish approach that we especially had to have at PUC because of expectations of parents with dormitory rules and
1: mm. all of that that were in play there. Yeah, well, um, it, we've been talking for an hour and I've really appreciated hearing more about your background and also, um, your vision for education in Adventism and beyond. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to, uh, preach about for a few minutes? (laughs) You know, I, uh, maybe I would like to maybe talk
0: about a couple of people that I've worked with. Um, please. And, um, which illustrates perhaps a point that I wanna make. Um, When you uh, go to a place like UC uh, Santa Barbara, one of the world's greatest universities, it's hard to find somebody to chair the visit. And uh, the UC chancellors can't chair each other's visits. And there are only two other institutions good enough (laughs) to chair, USC or Stanford. So you always have to go out of the region. And so I said to them, you can't name your chair, but what are some institutions that, you know, you would consider acceptable to chair your visit? And one of those was Cornell. So I contacted the president of Cornell University, David Scorton, and asked if he would chair the visit. And he said he would be happy to chair the visit. Now, shortly before the visit began, um, I got an email from UC, Santa Barbara that said, by the way, you're not allowed to buy any alcohol on this visit for the team dinners. Now, you have to understand, team members are paid nothing for these visits, but basically the only perk is a very high-class restaurant meal in the evening that is often accompanied by the team members choosing the appropriate bottle of wine and sharing uh, a bonding experience over a bottle of wine, which I never partake, uh, partake in. And so I said to um, them, I said to the university, I said, but I've never, even faith-based institutions, even PUC paid for the bottles of wine. I said, uh, you know, I said, I've just noticed that, the, that there's a bonding experience that goes on. So anyway, I said, look, I'll pay for it myself. And it's not very really nice Well, we figured out how to do it. So I showed up for the first meeting and there was David meeting him for the first time, this great leader of one of the great universities in the country. And I said, David, I I've had a little problem with the alcohol. And uh, he said to me, uh, yeah, but I've got it worked out. He said, oh, I'll pay for it. I said, well, you know, I got it worked out. And I said, it's kind of ironic that I would be asking for this because I don't drink wine. He said, I don't either. Shall we share a glass of sparkling water tonight? He says to me. <laughs> so for three nights, we shared sparkling water. And on the third night, uh, David is a Jewish, Uh, He talked about his father being a shoe salesman in Los Angeles Hmm. and how far he had gone, you know, in his career compared to what his father had and how his father would not be able to believe what he was experiencing. So I finally on the third night, I said, David, why don't you drink wine? He said many years ago, I had a friend who was an alcoholic. And I promised him that if he would never drink again, I would never drink And I've kept that promise to him ever since. Hmm. And I thought, what an amazing demonstration of maintaining your values and how important values are, not just for Adventist presidents, but for a president at Cornell. Now, um, he has gone on from there. His next job was he was the head of the Smithsonian. And now he's the head of all of the medical colleges uh, in America. He's the head of president of that association. And I just saw somebody who lived his values. And that's what I want to say. That's what's important is for leaders to live their values, even when uh, people aren't noticing. He said, you know, he was having to raise tons of money and alcohol is always involved. And he said, "Uh, my wife and I always have sparkling water when we're out raising money. That's just the way we do it. And so um, it was inspiring. It was another thing that was kind of interesting is that, you know, the, the Cornell campus in, is in Ithaca and it's about five hours from New York City and all of their professional programs are in New York City and all of the other programs are in Ithaca. So he had to go back and forth. Now he was at the level that he could have afforded uh, or told the university, part of my contract is I want a limo and a limo driver that will take me, or I want a plane to my disposal, that I can fly to get there more quickly. He rode the student bus. Wow. And he said, I do that because that's the way I get to know the students. So there's also this uh, humility that I learned from watching uh, David Scorton function, but by the way, he's a practicing physician, a cardiologist focusing on teenage issues, continued to practice while he was president of this great university. So I thought, you know, since we've been talking a little bit about leadership that there was someone that I watched that um, really inspired me to maintain my commitment to my own values um, in in, in the ways that
1: I have been raised as an Adventist. Thank you for sharing that. What strikes me about that um, character sketch that you just shared is also, it's not just values for values sake, When he was saying that he wouldn't drink, it wasn't just because he made that commitment to God or to a group of fellow believers. He made it to his friend, and it's because he cared so much about his friend that he maintained that. The same with riding with the uh, students on the bus. It's because of the information uh, gathering and also perhaps the community that he could understand better. As a leader of it, because he was with the the actual um, students. So, uh, thank well, the you second for uh, that.
0: the second visit we did was with. Um, I had to be online because he had a family conflict, so we he was virtually with us. And I remember a meeting we had with uh, staff, an open meeting with staff, and they were talking about how disheartened they were with some recent student suicides. And you may not remember, but Cornell had a similar problem with students jumping off bridges there. Hmm. It was a a big national news and he was president. Hmm. He talked very personally about this. And then he said to them, if you want to contact me further, here is my email. Now, I don't know very many Cornell University type presidents that are giving out emails To follow-up on how to prevent student suicides on another campus. Again, there was that empathy that he was exhibiting and showing for another campus and the problem that it was dealing with. And he was using his experience with the same problem to help.
1: Hmm. That's great. Well, uh, are there any other um, anecdotes that you want to share as we're talking about uh, leadership? I love that you've gotten to, as you've Um, kind of move between denominational education and the larger American, uh, North American context, you've gotten to meet so many really interesting um, folks that I think a lot of Adventists wouldn't ever get to uh, meet unless they were um, perhaps reading the literature.
0: Right. Well, maybe a good place to end would be my very first superintendent, And this was a man whose name was Wayne Foster. Wayne was a good old boy from the South, and he was a superintendent of Potomac who hired uh, Norma and me to our first jobs as teachers. Well, Miriam Tymoson was the principal, but he had to support it. And um, he could be very uh, vocally independent. (laughs) He was independently wealthy from nursing home investments, so he didn't have to worry about the church for his income but he had the ability to build camaraderie and pride in what we were doing. We thought we were the best teachers in the world. We were in the best conference in the world. We had the best schools in the world because that was the message he conveyed to us. But when I got the invitation to be president of the Washington DC Forum, and here I was in my second year of teaching and he was the superintendent I thought I'd better contact him because I didn't want to get into trouble for being that uh, president. So I contacted Wayne and I said, uh, I've been invited to be the president and I don't want to embarrass you and uh, so forth. And he wrote back a very strong letter and said, if I let that chapter become a namby-pamby chapter, he was going to personally kick me in my (laughs) pants. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the kind of leaders I was privileged to work with. I never had one that wasn't like that, Mm. ever, including Al McClure, who hired me to be the vice president for education for the North American division.
1: Yeah,
0: Uh, He was known as being a very conservative man. He had fired teachers at Southern as the board chair uh, because they didn't have the orthodoxy he wanted. And yet when it came to the division, he was willing to hire me to be the vice president of education. Uh, Shortly before then, uh, my wife, Norma, was undergoing great consternation about whether she was going to participate in an ordination service for women. And I thought the church was about ready to vote approval of ordination. So I thought she should wait. And and not go through that service. And after we had argued quite a bit, she said to me, um, "I need a husband, not a lawyer."
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so I wrote Al, and I said, "Al, my wife says that she needs a husband and not a lawyer." And he wrote back, and he said, "It's time for you to be a husband." <laughs> 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 so, I think that's another a key area to be sensitive to yeah. people's needs and, and feelings and broader family support groups uh, than sometimes to support a very orthodox kinds of conservative positions. Family needs to come first. Yeah, Those are the most important things than upholding a particular position of the church. But it was a surprising response from someone who had such a conservative reputation.
1: Yeah. Well, it's been um, a real honor to speak with you. And I'm deeply gratitudinous for you taking the time to share these stories with me and the larger spectrum community. And I'm looking forward to hearing from everyone, um, uh, their reactions to all the really interesting um, perspectives, stories, um, some controversial that you shared, as I would expect. Thank you so much.
0: Well, I want to thank you, Alex. Um, I have to tell you that I begin my mornings with an hour and a quarter walk. I try to walk 10,000 steps a day, and I start in the morning, and I'm often listening to your podcast. So I want to thank you for taking the time to do this because it's helped my steps go by far more quickly than if I wasn't listening to something interesting.
1: (laughs) Good. I'm glad I can help you fulfill the health message. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wish you all the best, and uh, I really appreciate the legacy that you've given us in the Adventist community.
0: Thank you. Yes, I knew Sister White.
1: We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move,
0: with the poor, and the meek, and the hungry, and the lonely.
1: I'll never forget it.